For the Millers, movie nights were once tradition. Now Sarah could hardly get through the opening credits, not on that old couch. But one day while shopping on QVC.com, she learned Lazy Boy recliners had slimmed down a bit. And in just a few clicks, Sarah got her Lazy Boy chair and a popcorn maker and a soundbar by Bose. And with one quick trip to QVC.com, Movie Night and Sarah's Back were saved. Shop QVC.com slash podcast and use code QVC20podcast for $20 off $40 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Bread Isle, are you ready to rock? Dave's Killer Bread is the country's number one organic bread for a reason. Always delivering killer taste, killer texture, and killer nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Hey friends, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. All right, on this week's episode, I have doctrine, doctrine, wow, I'm combining words. Let me try that again. I have Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Um, They have been described in a myriad of ways, a scholar, activist, scholar, leader, thought leader, teacher, public theologian, ethicist, poet of moral reason, and word artist. Yeah, buckle up. This is a fun one. I really appreciated Robin's perspectives. They were challenging, and I think that for those of you who maybe are trying to explore some different rooms of the Christian tradition, you might find Robin's perspectives helpful. So I hope you enjoyed this week's guest. That being said, which I that's always my segue into the next part, so it is what it is. But that being said, I did want to thank everyone genuinely from the bottom of my heart for sharing the podcast. Um, I did not expect us having um, over 100,000 downloads in less than a year. I did not expect us to be growing every week. Um, we continue to, which is really humbling. And I promise I am working really hard to get all kinds of guests on here. I have some doozies coming your way. Um, I don't want to announce them just yet, but I have some, I think some pretty challenging episodes and also some people that you might know uh, pretty well uh, who have come on the show um, or that I'm trying to currently book. So we are working hard to, to build the podcast and we are also in talks for something very different with the podcast that we'll be announcing once it's all worked out. So I'm excited to share um, that news with you when it's ready. I think it will be really helpful to our community. I'm not sure how many of you know that the New Evangelicals do way more than just podcasting. Um, we have an Instagram account, a Facebook community, a website. We do Zoom groups monthly, really weekly now. Um, and we're really doing our best to help people who are walking through this renegotiation of their Christian faith and trying to understand their uh, where they sit in the historical tradition. And so we do a lot more than just podcasting. But that being said, we're always thinking about ways to grow and to expand and to give people more access to different types of content content. Um, so we are working on something for, for the podcast type platform that I'm looking forward to sharing with you soon. The reason why we're able to do all this is because people support us financially. I mean, that's just the reality of things. You know, all this content is, is ad free right now and totally paywall free, but it does cost us something to make. There's a cost behind all of this. There's a cost to, um, have zoom. There's a cost to, to upload this stuff. There's a cost for website hosting. There's a cost, uh, there, there's a time 
costs associated with this. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who who supports us monthly. I'm going to be very transparent with you. You know, we we made a commitment to always be open and honest about everything that we do. We are two thirds of the way funded to our foundational goal. What that means is that for us to be here in the long term, we're looking to raise $6,500 a month. That will cover my salary, that will cover our taxes that we owe on that salary, that will also cover our overhead, and it will also allow us to have some flexibility to put some money into other projects that require more professional type um, um, help, such as a docu-series and other things that we're kind of brainstorming on right now. So right now, we're at about $4,000 monthly. If you you are able to help us in that goal, it would mean so much. Right now, because everything is so tight, if we lose a donor, which happens, you know, people come and go, it really affects um, just that month. And again, I'm just speaking, I, I didn't plan on saying this, I'm talking into a microphone right now, but I'm thinking about the people who are listening, just to be honest with you, I, I'm working through sometimes the anxiety of figuring out how I'm going to make it work with the family and uh, with the wife who's due in March. <laughs> because I'm so grateful for where we're at. It certainly helps, but we're just not all the way there yet. So anyway, listen, I'm not saying that to manipulate you. That is not the point. I'm just being honest and transparent where we're at. There is never any pressure to give, okay? We're not your church. We're not here to tell you that that by giving to us, you're giving to God. That is not the point. We are saying if you enjoy our work, if it's helping you and you're able to, and you're able to help us financially, it would be much appreciated because we don't charge for this work. So that's what I am saying. But anyway, I want to get that off my chest and just let you know, you know, I wanted to let the community know where we're at and where we're heading. We have great things in the works. We're working on so many other things. Um, it's hard to announce just yet, but they are, it, it is all coming. So hang tight. Uh, but yeah, let's get back to this episode. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Don't forget, if you are able to, um, leaving us a review and a comment or some kind of rating would be really helpful on, on any platform that you're listening to this podcast or watching it on. So, all right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Robin. I hope you enjoy it. Robin, I appreciate you making time. This is, um, you know, you're a hard person to get a hold of, for the record. But I'm glad <laughs> I was able to to to, to, to uh, nail a slot down and have you on the show. So thank you so much for making time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm very curious about the new part of new evangelicals. <laughs> I understand. And we can get into that for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to just read a little bit of off your website for my audience. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you the floor. Maybe you can fill in some blanks. So Robin has been described, you're a doctor, so Dr. Robin, has been described in a myriad, myriad of ways as scholar, activist, scholar, leader, thought leader, teacher, public theologian, ethicist, poet of moral reason, and word artist. I love that. Those are all amazing. So yeah. why don't you fill in some of these blanks? Who is Robin? Well, I, I think that I would first not say any of that about myself if I was just answering a question about who I am. Uh, I'm a curious person. I'm a storyteller. I rely on stories because I think stories shape us. Yeah. And I'm a person with a lot of questions. Mm. I think that's how I would describe myself. I mean, the, the other pieces to me are... Uh, you know, I'm also transgender, non-binary, mm. mixed race Latinx. I'm born of a Mexican woman and a Scottish man. Mm. Um, 
so I have lived the both and of racial identity my entire life. I, I'm originally from Northern Mexico, the Republic of Texas. And mm-hmm. I try to say that as often as I can because yeah. a place and locus of origin and starting points are important. Yeah. I chose the regressive politics over ten, uh, of Tennessee over the regressive politics of Texas when I left the Bay Area. Uh, and, and I'm in search of my people and have always been in search of my people. And, and that's probably where my curiosity really emerges. Mm. Okay. I first discovered you on Twitter via Joe Lumen. Um, I've, uh-huh. be- I've become friendly with Joe. She has taught me so much. Wow. Yeah. I mean, she's just been so gracious with me. And I saw, I think she tweeted something that you tweeted. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to follow this person. That's how I kind of discovered yep. you. That yep. I saw that you work with Trip Fuller. So wh- would you mind kind of giving us some of your backstory? I'm just kind of curious. Did you grow up in like evangelical spaces? I mean, how did how did you kind of get from point A to where you are now? Yeah, I, I don't know if you know some of these names, um, but I went to college with a guy by the name of Matt Chandler. Oh, yeah. Do you know that name? I do. I do. So I, I went to college with Matt and hmm. um, I attended a Bible study called Grace Bible Study, where he was the mm-hmm. lead teacher for uh, several years. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist hmm. uh, in evangelical spaces hmm. until I left Texas in my mid 20s and began to really explore other expressions of Christianity. Yes and other expressions of ritual life where I discovered the Episcopal church and more, more liturgical mm-hmm. branded yeah. spaces. Uh, but yeah, I grew up evangelical and was baptized in a Southern Baptist church in Longview, Texas. Um, went, I mean, was, you know, I don't know if you remember back when, the passion conferences started. Sure. But went to passion conferences uh, in high school and college, and even went to the one day uh, camping trip outside of in between Nashville and Memphis. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was, it was this weekend of, of passion mm. conferences. Yeah. So, you know, people like Louis Giglio, John yep. Piper, yep. Um, yeah. those were people that I was inundated with and and always had a lot of questions. Yes. Yeah. And and I was assigned female at birth. And because I had questions and because I was asking them, hmm. they didn't always get answered to my satisfaction. Mm-hmm which I think was around gender and, and, and I was, I've always been gender non-conforming. And so that, that was always interesting to me that, that these questions that I thought were inherently patriarchal, um, that, that the responses I would get never did mention patriarchy or male dominance. And so uh, you know, I, I have always thought that patriarchy harms men just as much, if not more, 
then it harms other people. Mm. And, and the internalized male dominance that male bodied persons are socialized into. Mm. So I, so I have um, always sought to practice a generous hospitality with people Mm. because the ways in which we internalize the bullshit, it shows up in, in various ways. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's one reason why I continue to work with Trip Fuller and a lot of other white guys, because we have to remember that if we are going to practice liberation and equity, it has to be across the board in community. Mm-hmm. And, and I know separatist communities are valuable for some people, um, but they feel kind of isolating to me or myopic to me. Yeah. And so I try to work with as much difference as I can, but you know, those, those evangelical spaces, you know, I had so many questions and, and when I finished college, these two cis white male professors said, you really need to go to graduate school. Well, I didn't know what graduate school meant. Like, (laughs) what does that mean? Right. Right. And so I attended a United Methodist seminary Mm -hmm. and my eyes were opened Mm. to theology outside of evangelicalism. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I started reading liberation theology from Latin America. I started reading, uh, decolonial thought, post-colonial thought. And so I've been sitting with deconstruction for 20 plus years. Mm. And now it's like a thing that people are doing. And, and I'm like, oh, well, I, I started that when I was in college, when I started reading feminist theology. And, and I chose the route of the academy to do my deconstruction work and to piece together a ritual life that felt whole Hmm. because, because I, you know, my questions, I had poked so many holes in my ritual life, you know, that, that I was a little bit stranded, you know, on the side of the road with, you know, I had, had, I'd torn it all apart and, and there were just fragments of ritual life uh, left. And so um, when I got to seminary, of course, you know, like there was a thing of, I can think and I can write and, and then I went and did the PhD and, Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, that is its own toxic process Mm. uh, in and of itself. But I, I feel like in graduate school, I figured out my voice. Mm. I I also became unrecognizable to myself in the sense of I'm not very practical and I, have more questions than I do answers. Yes. And so yeah. to get to your question about activist theology, three years ago, I launched my scholarship as a collaborative project of meaning making and connection in an attempt to live out our theologies and ethics in a meaningful way. And so thus the activist theology project was born and I work with uh, a great, great handful of people to do that work but it's a it's an attempt to recover practices that will bring heaven to earth, as Joe mm. Lumen says it. Yes, <laughs> I love that. That's man. You said um, 
you just said so many amazing things. And I have a few questions as you kind of said, said yeah. some of those things. So why don't we park just for a few minutes briefly? I, I know we didn't talk about this, but you you really piqued my interest on the uh, deconstruction movement because you said that, you know, really you started deconstructing way before it was trendy or cool. And yeah. you went more of the academic route. Obviously, I know that you're tapped into these circles. Um, there is something stirring that uh, a wave has kind of crested, if you will, or or is gaining. And a lot of people, for a lot of reasons, are finding themselves um, more and more at odds with, um, specifically in my circles, the white evangelical institution, right? And what yeah. that represents. That could be SBC. That could be more reformed. It could be a lot of things. Um, yeah. Non-denominational, ARC networks, et cetera. Um, and a lot of people, um, have, you know, it's, it could be the Christian nationalist, Ben, it could be the Trump thing, it could be the, it could be the, you know, the idea of what is hell. And I, oh my mm -hmm. God, turns out there's other ways to view this could be, yeah. I never knew that, 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 that we had none of the original autographs of the new Testament. Why was I not told this? Right. It could be anything like that. So what for you as someone who has really been in this process, what is your take on, you know, I, and broad, broadly speaking, we can't get to every nuance, but the deconstruction movement, as, as you see it, what are you seeing happening on your on from from your vantage point with with the deconstruction movement now? Well, I think people, in large part, are tired of not having a voice and not being able to think for themselves. Yeah. I think theologies of certainty are catching up with people. Hmm, that's good. And ethics of certainty. That's really good. And, and I think, you know, we are nuanced people. Yeah. We are social animals. We need different. If we continue to homogenize ourselves, will we, we will become fascistic. Mm. And we need heterogeneity to thrive. We, we need a kind of cosmopolitanism mm. to survive. Yeah. And, and I think the white evangelical institution is suffocating difference. Mm. And I think people are catching on to what's happening mm. for good. me. Yeah. For me, my curiosity kept leading me down a path of uncertainty. And I, and, and I was watching, you know, in, in one of the early books that I read was, or articles that I read was, how can a male savior save women? Hmm. And that hmm. was an early feminist theology article that I read. And, and so I began to wonder and just be curious. Right. I already knew that I was queer. I was already gender, gender nonconforming. And when, when I let this curiosity lead me. Yeah. I learned that the theology of certainty no longer held me captive. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then of course, when I heard that hell was non-canonical, hmm. you know, 25 years ago, <laughs> I was like, Oh, but these people, white evangelicals are using hell as a fear tactic to scare people into their churches and branding it as eternal life. Well, that doesn't make sense. Mm. So the, just it, it very, you know, it was like peeling an onion, yeah. you know, once you, yeah. once you peel one, 
you got to peel the rest of it. And, right. and it, and, th- and that's why I say my ritual life was left in fragments by the time I got to seminary, because I had, I had read a whole bunch of feminist theology and that was before gender and women's studies departments were all over, you know, college campuses, but I had begun to read some very early queer theory and gender stuff. And I just thought, why, like, why aren't we, why aren't we interrogating this stuff in our churches? Hmm. And, and so I remember early on um, Christians for biblical equality, which was a kind of separate, but equal feminism. Hmm. And I would read a bunch of their stuff because I, I, I was really a proponent of, a sense of radical equality Hmm. and, and that even though we have different genitalia and are socialized differently, Hmm. that together we can produce something good that it it doesn't, it doesn't need to be one over the other. Right. Right. But Christians for biblical equality still maintain a kind of separate, but equal philosophy. Hmm. And so I would see through those arguments and I'm like, okay, that's, that's that's not it either and so i i just found myself not satisfied yeah with with the attempts at inclusion or equality or mm. egalitarianism yeah and um and i think i think for a lot of people it's catching up to them I think you put it in really beautiful words. <laughs> I mean, you really captured so many, so many things in 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 way less words than myself. And I, I think from, from from everything I'm seeing, and you know, brief, just very briefly, part of my story is I grew up fundamentalist homeschool, the whole nine. You know, I was a good church yeah. kid, um, and. Um, I've always been rethinking church in general since I was young. Hey, how can we do church better? That was kind of my beginning phase of rethinking things. And then um, slowly just kind of found myself like similar to you, just question after question. And I didn't understand why we couldn't include the queer community and like, but these clobber passages and what do I do with this? I always kind of back and forth at the time. And um, when Trump happened, that was a watershed moment for me of like, oh my God what is happening to the faith that I grew up in that I love. And then when the Ahmaud Arbery murder happened and the George Floyd murder happened and the Breonna Taylor murder happened, something in my head, I don't know what subconsciously clicked, but something said, Tim, something is way wrong. Like red alert, whatever you think you're a part of, there's an issue here. And that's yeah. those were all kind of the straws that led to me eventually what we now call deconstructing, you know, just really rethinking and realizing what the way we phrase it in on in our community is we're we're coming out of the basement of evangelicalism and opening up new doors in the house of Christian mm-hmm. thought, right? And it turns out there's so many doors, so many nooks and crannies that we were never exposed to or told stay away from that now right. we're curious. We want to explore what are yeah. other ways to view these things. So I think you're your um, summary is really beautiful. So what what was your doctorate in? Like, what did you focus on when you were studying that? Well, I'm a one-trick pony, I tell people. Fair all, enough. All of, all of my degrees are in theology and ethics. My undergrad is in theology. My graduate degree is in theological ethics. Um, and then my PhD is in constructive philosophical theology and philosophical ethics. Just mainly means that I 
read a bunch of theory and deal with ideas and I'm not very practical. Okay, fair enough. So is the reason why you started activist theology to kind of counteract that a little bit? Like, okay, if I'm going to be in theory land all day, how, how do we translate some of this stuff I'm thinking into the real world? Well, a friend, I mean, yes. And the backstory is a friend of mine said, you need to move to middle America and start being with real people. Mm. And I said, okay. So I packed up my Prius because every good leftist drives a hybrid. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I, I packed up my Prius. I left the Bay Area. I drove to Nashville, found an apartment, made home and trying to live out my values. Hmm. So how's it going so far? Well, I I think, you know, it's, it's not without its complications here in the South and, you know, as a trans Latinx trying to do imaginative work in, in a, in a place that is historically divided in black and white thinking. Yes. It's very hard to teach people nuance while they are also trying to be anti-racist and anti-oppression oriented. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have a podcast and that seems to be um, popular with some people. I've just finished my second book around bodies, embodiment and democracy. Oh. And I'm hoping to start doing some pop-up dinners to try to return to some of these ancient practices that shaped us as people. Uh, let's go into that. So what are some of these ancient practices that, you know, you feel are important? Well, I talk a lot about eating together. Mm, yes. It's hard to hate people when you're tasting good food. Amen. And so <laughs> I I want to... I want to try to eat with people and yeah. like, yeah. let's figure out how to have dinners together right. and how to practice hospitality and practice togetherness. Because as I write in activist theology, I, I don't care what you believe because what you believe will show up in your practices because hmm. all theology is ethics. Hmm. Everything we believe shows up as a practice of our values. I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> hmm. Um, I have a question about that a little bit because you mentioned yeah. that the eating together, I'm, I'm part Italian. I love to eat. I'm a big fan, big foodie. In fact, after yeah. this recording, we're doing some sushi with some friends. I'm looking very, oh, great. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that uh, I encounter a lot in my community is a lot of people are kind of fresh in this mode of like rethinking everything, and they feel really angry and hostile um, at Christian nationalists, at their parents who have been really sucked into that vortex. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do we, you know, from your vantage point, how do we bridge some of these gaps? Because, for example, right, you made a great point that um, that what you believe shows up in your practices. My parents are great human beings. They raised me right. My my dad has done amazing things, helped people out, you know, gave them money whenever they needed. Like he's just been a, he's a good human, yet is totally sucked into the Christian nationalist stuff, mm-hmm. right? And I as a father-son relationship and we we he's now a grandfather to my my son. I don't want to jeopardize those relationships 
even though I really want to tell him, like, I'm really concerned for you. And also, I think you're harming a lot of people, right? Yeah. How, how do we bridge some of these gaps? Because I'm like you, where I think we need each other, but sometimes the gap is so wide. I'm like, how do I not other them, even though I really want to? Yeah, this is the perennial question, I think, because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with people who are Trump supporters or who believe the big lie, Yes. et cetera. Yes. yes, yes, yes. But I think we have to remember there is no separation. We are all deeply, radically interconnected. And, and if we can find the fissures and the pathways to reduce the distance that we have with each other ideologically, hmm then we can practice a more generous togetherness. You know, I I think about this a lot because we are so divided. We are so opposed. Totally. And and on some level, we need differences to flourish. Right. We don't don't need to homogenize our society. Mm -hmm. But we do need to reduce harm. Right. And so... How do we foster a a relationality around harm reduction? And so how do you go to your dad and in the spirit of harm reduction to try to sew up the wounds and the fissures that and the fragments that have grown into chasms? Right. Right. And and. And it's not going to happen overnight. This is long, you know, what, where we are today didn't happen overnight. Totally. It's been happening for 30 and 40 years. Definitely. I mean, we're, we're, we're just reaping uh, the fruits that have been sowed for <laughs> a long, long time, right? The, the, right? Donald Trump is simply the fruit off the tree. It's not an accident. Right. Um, right. I 100% agree with you on that, 100%. Yeah. And so it will take generations to repair this. But you know, we need to have the social courage hmm. to be the people to begin to begin to do the work of healing. Yeah. Yeah. Ourselves and each other. I think you're right. <laughs> well, we often talk about on, on the podcast and in the Instagram and stuff. I always say that we really don't want to become the very thing that we're fighting against all over mm-hmm. again, right? We do, right. And the way I phrase it, as I say, I don't want to become a fundamentalist all over again, just just with a whole new skills, a whole new language. Um, and I'm a big believer that 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 that. Well, for me, part of my theology is how do we participate in the cycle of the divine that brings healing and and order to the world and not chaos and destruction? And mm-hmm. so I'm always kind of having that that like Rubik's cube in my head because I see the interaction. I see people who went. I've interviewed pastors who went on the podcast and tell me it wasn't a big deal. And I want to pull my hair out, right? Like you're a pastor. You're claiming to shepherd people. This is yeah. your theology. I just want to do this. You know, like what is wrong with you? At yeah. the same time, they're made in the Imago Day. Right, they're humans, and how do I bridge the connection to show them a better way forward? That is the riddle for me. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, and you said it a few minutes ago when you were talking about your dad. People are good people. Yeah, they do good things, mm. and they have bad theology, mm. which shows up in their practice. Mm. And mm. so, how do we actually? invite people into a different imagination 
Right. So that their theologies can change. That's right, especially considering how, in my circles, I'm sure in yours at one point, how fundamentalist the theology is and how extreme and certain it is, right? Like, how do you have that conversation of uncertainty when the the theology is, no, we can be 100% certain that we know A, B, C, D, and E, and if you don't believe those things, you must not be a devoted Christian. That's the obstacle that I'm finding myself with. I mean, it just feels arrogant to me. Totally. There's no there's no intellectual humility, yeah. right? Part of part of being a good scholar is having intellectual humility and being able to, you know, argue a point constructively. Yes. Without relying on a particular brand of certainty that just is a straw man argument. Right. Right. Yeah, it's it's aggravating. In fact, today I, I I put a tweet out. It was like five things you don't have to believe to be a Christian, and I I just kind of hit them all. You know, you don't have to believe in a literal hell. You don't have to believe in A B C D and E. And uh, James White retweeted it. I'm not sure if you know who James White is, <laughs> but he loves certainty. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was just a great example of of his tweet was like, you know, well, my God, what what do you have to believe to be a Christian? And it's just like just the and all the comments underneath. It is so certain that 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 these five things that I said are just so clearly, you know, wrong. And it's like, yeah. man, the amount and it, a lot of times in those circles, and I grew up in them. That's why I can say this. There, it's under the pretense of humility. Oh, we're yeah. just lowly sinners. We don't deserve anything. Meanwhile, there's some of the most right. prideful belief systems you ever heard of. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a mind fuck if you ask me. I, I agree. Right. I mean, and on one way, we're so humbled. On the other way, hey, I believe that God, before the foundations of the world, hand chose me to go to heaven forever and damn most of you idiots. I mean, that, that's what they're right. saying. And it just makes no sense. So in, in your work, right, activist theology, um, what are some of the things that that maybe you're talking about, you're teaching on, of ways that people can practically start being part of that change, that heaven on earth that we all long for deep down? I think building capacity for difference, yeah. having an embodied awareness of difference. Hmm. Um, that's one thing that we could all do a lot better. Hmm. And, and, and to be mindful that stories shape us Yeah. and what stories are shaping you. Right. And what stories should be shaping you so that we hmm. can bring heaven to earth. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I like that a lot. You know, if the, if the story that is shaping you is that we need to have one religion and that religion be Christianity. And we ultimately need to have a theocracy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, uh, that might be bad theology. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that might be autocracy, Mm. not theocracy. Mm. That might be called fascism. Right. Right. And that's that's going to harm a lot of people. So what are the what are the ways that we can reduce harm? I, I, I when I when I teach my class at Duke, because I'm I'm on faculty at Duke Divinity School, I lead with if our theologies are not 
inherently harm reduction, <coughs> then we may be harming people. Hmm. So how do we fashion theologies and ethics that are inherently harm reductionistic? Hmm. So that's kind of like your foundational goal ultimately is how do we that's re- my starting point in every way. Yeah. yeah. In relationship, in our beliefs and our practices, where we buy our meat from, mm. you know, do, do we, do we buy, if we consume meat, do we buy meat from the grocery store that is mass produced or do we buy from a farm or a butcher shop? I mean, I, I really overhauled a lot of my practices when I moved home to the South and, and I said, okay, if I am going to be in relationship with all there is, the human and the non-human world, and if I'm going to consume meat products, right, then it's got to be done in the way of friendship. Hmm. How do I befriend animals? Hmm. And I found a local butcher shop, and I've gotten to know the guys at the butcher shop, and I go every week to pick up my six chicken breasts. I drive 18 miles to a butcher shop one way Mm. to to buy six chicken breasts Mm. yes i could go to the kroger at the end of the street here right but is that befriending Mm. is that befriending sustainability is that trying to combat climate change because our consumption practice there's no ethical consumption under capitalism Mm. and if i'm going to consume meat it has to be ethical and sustainable. But if there's already no ethical consumption under capitalism, then I've got to choose sustainability. Hmm. So the butcher shop is, is my path. Hmm. The same for our veggies. We buy during the summer, spring and summer, we buy from a, a CSA at a local farm. And so we try to source most of our food from farms and butcher shops. Hmm. So why, you know, people, people might think, why does this matter? I, this is deeply theological Hmm. because all theology is ethics. Hmm. (laughs) Unpack that capitalism statement. There's no, wait, sorry. Can you rephrase it for me? Cause I, 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 I can't repeat it. (laughs) I lost it. There, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Yeah. What does that mean? So it means that no matter no matter how good I try to be in choosing mm. my sources yeah they something has compromised my purchase mm. Okay, I follow you. Almost like almost like a supply chain thing. Like somewhere along the supply chain, something happened that yeah. compromised the ethical. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So so like for example, yeah. coffee. Coffee has become a commodity here. Yeah. And I write about this in my book that um, where where do we buy our coffee? There's a Starbucks at the other corner uh, across from the Kroger. Yeah. Do I go there for my coffee or do I try to go to local coffee stores to source my coffee? Right. So every month we, we belong to a coffee CSA that's based in California that I found when I lived there when I was teaching in Berkeley. 
and we buy our coffee from a coffee CSA where the farmers are paid a living wage and who own part of the company. Mm. And that to me feels like a better choice. Now they still have to ship it. So I still have a carbon footprint. Right. Right. But my consumption of the product, you know, they, they've got a really ethical business model. Right. Right. The person on the other, on the other end is actually making a living wage and not making, you know, a poverty wage while we get a cheaper price. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So I pay more for coffee, but it's really good coffee. It's Pachamama coffee. Shout Mm. out to Pachamama coffee. It's great coffee, uh, but this is what I try to do to make little moves against destruction. Yeah, which you know, I interestingly enough, <laughs> it fits in in a weird way. It fits that idea fits into how much of the theology I was taught. Right? We don't want to be sinful. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be part of sin. We want to resist sin. And here we are. I, I feel like with, with just some word swaps, we're talking a lot of the same language at one point. Right? It's just the. It's just maybe the. And I don't want to get too down in this down this rabbit hole, but obviously the way I was taught and probably you were taught were the individual actions that we can you know do the 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 certain you know the sexual sins, the cursing sins, the alcohol sins, whatever it is, yeah, right. But not so much like who we're tied to in in humanity and how right. our choices in a system that we don't have control over can impact those people. Uh, whether right. it's Amazon paying their employees poverty wages essentially while Jeff Bezos goes to the moon, that isn't so much of a sin issue. That's just capitalism doing its thing, right? As um, whereas something like you know who I sleep with before I'm married in an th- evangelical mind is a big no no. But really, right. you're just taking not you, but the it's the same concept, just applied in a much broader, I would say, more whole and more accurate idea of being part of the restoration of things and not causing harm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about social healing. Mm, I like that. It's good. I think it's about social flourishing. Mm. I think it's about thinking about you and other people and not just about myself and what I can benefit from. So like, here's an example. Yeah. Um, I really hate the competitiveness of all forms of academia, athletics, et cetera. And those of us who are writers and content creators yeah. can sometimes fall into the trap of being competitive with one another. Totally. And I refuse to participate in that kind of exchange. Hmm. And instead, I would rather collaborate with people and lift all of us up instead of choosing one person. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Hmm. And that's about that's a that's about my efforts at harm reduction. That's about my efforts at collaboration. That's about my efforts to collectively practice liberation Mm. Mm. which we can all we i mean we all need people to invite us into more collective practices yeah 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 that's really good I I definitely have fallen into the trap of (laughs) of the content creation you know, uh, race and, uh, you know, comparing who has more followers or whose videos did better. And I was telling my wife the other day, I said, I can't, 
because I do this full time now. I said, I can't live like this. Like the anxiety of worrying yeah. about how every video I, I post or how every podcast episode does there, there, there's a way to measure just metrics to make, to see just how you're doing and how your reach is. I mean, that that's fine. But when it's attached with, oh, it's not enough. I need more. Right. I need more. That's when for me, I, I realized like I have a, there's a beautiful community that I'm a part of already. I don't need to be worried about if I gain so many followers in one day or not, because who cares about that number? I have people who are already here who are engaging. That's what matters yeah. is how are we cultivating yeah. them? How are, are we sharing what, what, what we're able to share? So I, it's funny you mentioned that because I really, I feel that one big time as a content yeah. creator at times. I don't well, really resist that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we put so much value on that, on how many likes we get, on how many retweets. Did that right. tweet go viral? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'm just like, the only time a tweet went viral for me was when I was doxxed in April on Twitter. Oh my God. And no one wants, no one wants that to happen. No. And, and it was terrifying. And so I'm very happy with only having, I don't know, 5,500 followers on Twitter. I don't, I don't want 20,000 followers. Hmm. Hmm. And it's kind of like an empty, it's really a mirage, right? I mean, we, we know followers, number. It, it, it's amazing how so many of us have been convinced that to have a high number on a digital screen that doesn't even exist, right, is somehow a measure of you succeeding right. at life. It just, it, 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 you can have no impact at all, but if you have a blue check mark and have a lot of followers, somehow you've automatically made it, right? And certainly right. that, that could be a metric of work that you're doing in real life, but for sure. a lot of people, it, it might not be at all, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> And yeah. then we're not really part of healing at all. We're just we're just right. patting ourselves on the back. Well, th- this is gets to the ethics of transactions over the ethics of relationality. Mm. I would much rather be in relationship with people than exchange transactions with people. Hmm. I'm interested. Keep going with this. I like this <laughs> thought. <laughs> we don't we don't know how to be human with each other. We hmm. we compete with each other. Uh, we display yeah. toxic versions of ourselves, and and I and I'm like that is not going to get us to freedom and liberation, hmm. and it's certainly not going to foster belonging. Right. And so, if yeah. we can have an ethics of relationality and actually be in relationship with people, yeah, we could get somewhere. Hmm. Do you feel like Do you feel like social media has <laughs> has overall helped or overall um, you know, hindered that idea. <laughs> I go back and forth. Well, I don't think social media is the place where we're ultimately going to experience freedom yeah, or liberation. I would agree. It, it's too toxic. It, the algorithms are skewed. We now know the reports that are coming out that Instagram and Facebook is actually doing harm yeah, yep, yep. to all of us. Yes, yes. And provoking all of us to a kind of existence that is really scary. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think that, that social media is the place um, to do it unless you have like a private network where you can curate your community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And, you know, I go back to, how often are we eating with one another? How often are we sharing a coffee with one another? How often right. are we doing these ancient things that have long been with us that actually can steward belonging and togetherness and freedom and liberation? 
I love that. Yeah, I really see social media a double-edged sword for me. On one hand, when I lost my church community earlier this year, and even when I started started New Evangelicals in December, it was really helpful to know that I'm not alone and that there are people out there who are going through this stuff and see things this way. Um, and you know, we have a map people can sign up and see who's in their area. But long term, and even for like you said, for in, just for um, belonging, digital spaces are fine, but they're not. They're, they cannot be the end goal. There, there's a certain mysticism of another human in the same presence of another human. There's just something that happens there that you just cannot replicate, right, through Zoom or through a DM. And I'm with you on that. I do think that um, as soon as it's overall safe to go back to meeting a person um, due to the pandemic and, and, and all that kind of, you know, stuff kind of dwindles a little bit, um, that, that the future is how do I think for people who are maybe leaving the evangelical tradition for the first time feel totally um, spiritually homeless in that sense. They have no clue where to go. They don't know if they should go mainline. They've never been to a mainline church before. They don't even know if they should stay a Christian. I think a lot of people are really hungry just to at least eat with people and just talk. (laughs) Just start there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a path we need. Yeah, I agree. Um, Okay. I have two more questions for you if you're cool with that. Yeah. Um. My my first question is, I'm just kind of curious to get some of your thoughts. So, uh, I'm just gonna be really honest and transparent with you, and I'm honest with, with with my community. You know, I I realize I'm a white cisgendered male in a space that like, I know that a lot of times white men like to come into spaces, kick the door down, and say, "Don't worry, guys. I've read the book. Here's the answer." Right. And I, I'm really just doing my best to, to being to to try to be a student and just trying to learn and absorb. There are a lot of people like me who I know I talk to who are like, man, I just, I'm realizing my own privilege for the first time. I never knew it was a thing until like two years ago. You know, do you have any perspective and advice on just how people like myself can sit in and learn from people who are in activist theology or who are, you know, uh, leaning into other theologies, queer theology, maybe for the first time? How can we be a part of the space without at all taking over and just be active participants in, in your view? Well, I mean, I think it first starts with relationship. Hmm. How can you be in relationship with voices like myself, like Alicia Crosby, like Joe Lumen, those of us who have been on this journey a long time, but get overlooked because we're black, brown, trans, et cetera. Um, So I, I would say relationship is first. And then... And then be willing to do your own inner work. Yeah. Because when we change ourselves, we change the world. Hmm. That's good. Man, I don't know how you say such powerful things in so few words. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, I can sit on that for the next year and a half. <laughs> it's, just, it's so, so good. Less is, less is more. I just remember the Amish tenant. Less is more. <laughs> I respect that. So, you know, last question for you. And again, uh, Robin, I appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me and, and hanging yeah. out. And uh, honestly, yeah. just uh, um, so much wisdom and perspective. I'm excited to learn more. I, I actually just interviewed um, Shay and Brian from Queer Theology. We just mm-hmm. did a whole three part series and uh cool. yeah shay is part of the old catholic tradition and that just blew all my categories i mean they yeah. were just blown to smithereens um so my last question for you is what is the what what in 
realizing that maybe we're not going to see heaven on earth the way we we completely want in our lifetime, what is the heaven on earth that you envision in like a, a quote unquote perfect world, right? In, in in that way, like what does that liberation? What are what, what does it look like? What 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 picture are we painting to try and aim for? I think our friends who are on the streets without homes would have homes. Hmm. Our friends who don't have enough food to feed their family have abundance. I think about our differently abled friends Hmm. having access to systems and to, to, to replenish what they need. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I want to be, I mean, I want to be also realistic. Like, obviously we need to eradicate anti-black racism and, and, and the, and the vitriol Hmm. that we, that we often exhibit toward immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if we, if we don't, if we don't learn to take care of our neighbors. Yeah. We won't be able to take care of the stranger. It's mm, good. I am reading a book right now, how to do nothing. Um, Resisting the attention economy by mm. Jenny O'Dell. It's a brilliant book. And she has a chapter, chapter five, on the ecology of strangers. Hmm. And what I want to see in bringing heaven to earth is that we fashion an ecology of strangers where we each have embodied awareness to know how to behave hmm. when there is difference present. Hmm. Instead of relying on women of color to lead the way mm. that, that we've done our own inner work yeah. to have the capacity and bandwidth to have embodied awareness, to be able to be in an ecology of strangers and strangeness. Mm. That's what I hope for. I love it. Um, where can people find you? Where can they read your work? Where can they get your book? And when's your new book coming out, by the way? So the new book drops around Trans Day of Awareness in March 2022. Okay. So you can pre-order that from your local bookstore. Uh, the book title is called Body Becoming, A Path to Our Liberation. And it's really a, a, my attempt to talk about a vision for democracy through embodiment. Hmm. So that comes out in March. Okay. Uh, we can talk about how to get the word out on that um, because we're hoping to have a virtual event and an in-person event here in Nashville. So cool. Love, love to be in touch about that. Sure. And then you can go to my website, which is Dr. Robin Henderson, Espinosa.com. And I'm on all the socials at I Robin, the letter I R O B Y N. 
Perfect. Well, I'll make sure I link in the show notes to your website and to uh, where they can pre-order the book. And um, we'll talk about some future stuff maybe to get the book uh, awareness out there. So Great. Thank um, you. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and making time. Uh, it means a lot. I think the audience will get a lot out of this conversation and hopefully be thinking a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's been good to be here. I hope we can stay in touch on Twitter. I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> 